in my early 20s, um, I was a, a missionary um, right out of college, raised money, moved overseas, uh, was living in, at first in um, East Asia, Japan, and India, and then moved to Western Europe and worked in South uh, and Central Europe, North Africa, eventually the, the Middle East, where I was uh, studying Arabic and, and doing things, and it feels like a lifetime ago. I was reflecting on that, though, and, and one of the experiences that was kind of wild, I grew up in a pretty niched way of doing Christianity. Um, I grew up in Northeast Mississippi, out in the country, more cows than people, um, at uh, a small little church, pretty fundamental. And it was a, a Pentecostal, charismatic, Jesus movement church. Um, and there was a pretty clear, for me, my understanding was, is that um, you could be saved and then you could really be saved, right? Like you could say that you knew Jesus, but then you could have like an outpouring of the Spirit and like really be like supercharged, uh, Genie Nintendo, break all the, the rules and barriers in life saved. Anybody remember this, Genie? Thank you. Thank you very much. Somebody got that. A couple of you in your 20s were like, what are you doing? All right. So it was like a code breaker. It doesn't matter. So anyway, um, but I remember as I started moving out and, and meeting others who kept professing Jesus, we really did not look or sound the same. We would talk about Jesus and our affinities for him, how much we loved him, but we didn't have the same views or always the same theological constructs or the same approaches or the same backgrounds, or the same orientations. And it was very kind of disorienting for me. I didn't always know what to do with that. I didn't know what to do when I met Coptic Christians who were considered the oldest church in, in the world that are based in Northeast Africa that where this Jesus movement really came about and first started. I didn't know what to do with Moroccan Christians. Um, I didn't know what to do with Japanese Christians or Indian Christians. I didn't know what to do with a lot of the European Christians who had really no construct of Christendom. It was just a very kind of mind-breaking, uh, barrier-breaking reality for me. Um, and then I came back to the Southeast in, uh, in America, and then it all made sense to me again right? Here's how Christianity kind of looks. But, but I've been challenged by that going, you know, so many times, I don't know about you, but I can assume I get this whole thing wrapped, my mind wrapped around it when it comes to Jesus. And then if you set out, step outside of your kind of homogeny, you go, it's just different, but there's also things shared. And it can be a real challenge. And, and I think that what we're trying to get across in this series called Margins is as we're looking through these chapters in Acts and breaking it down, we're finding that the Jesus movement keeps breaking more and more barriers. It goes further and further into the margins. And as we'll see, it eventually starts outwitting us, that we can't always figure out where Jesus is going or where the movement's going, and that we'll be in our safe places wanting to go, well, that's what a Christian is and that's what isn't a Christian. But then you read this and you're going, well, I guess it kind of breaks my brain. And that's what we're going to look at here, because this passage with Cornelius is a brain breaker for people who were Jewish at this time. And it's just, a, it's just a really big deal. And already for Jewish people, their minds were being broken because they were thinking of a Messiah as someone who would come and ascend in power and then in turn bring freedom. Instead, they're given a Messiah that 
ascended through power through descending in weakness and said, now you need to come and do the same. And the ways that you will show this weakness is by no longer being against your enemies, but loving your enemies. And by giving of yourself, not to the extent that it costs you a little, but it costs you all to those who are in need. That this movement won't be about having hand and overtaking, but it'll be about turning your hand over and surrendering. Now, that was already a lot for a Jewish person who was living in a suppressed reality for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then to add on top of that, now we're going to step outside of our own kind of homogeny, and this is going to be for people that don't follow all the same rules and constructs we do. That's going to be a lot for them. So we just need to kind of have some empathy on the front end for Peter and others as they're stepping, stepping into this. And for many scholars, this is one of those five chapters that's considered like the, the linchpin, like this is where it hinges. This is one of those top five things we can look at in Scripture. Because you, unless you're Jewish, um, you would not be here today without this passage. Without this moment, we wouldn't be sitting here. And so we need to consider just the weight and gravity, why it's such a big deal, and then we'll, we'll attempt to at least try to look at what that could mean for us. So let's start here in verse 1. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Three things we see about Cornelius on the front end. One is this. He was Roman. Now, what does that mean? He's Roman. He was another. He's a pagan. He's non-Jewish. He's not a part of the promised people. He's Roman. Two, we see that he's a centurion. Centurions were, um, were basically kind of these little small mini generals who had battalions of 100 soldiers. They were a big deal. They were paid at least five times, as not, if not more than a soldier. And they would run kind of these like special force op groups. And for every um, centurion that had 100, if you had six or more centurions together, they'd have a regiment. And he was a part of the Italian regiment. It was somewhere between 600 and 1,000 soldiers. And they were all stationed in a strategic area in Caesarea, just about 20, 30 miles north there of Joppa, which we know Joppa is modern-day Tel Aviv. And so we have this Roman who's centurion, which also complicates and muddies the water because he, that means if he's a centurion and he's Roman, he's also an oppressor. He's not just an other, he's a suppressing other. So this really shouldn't be happening right now. Like, it'd be one thing to be like, yeah, like a, a Roman Greek you know, woman, man, who's just kind of like making things in pottery. No, this is a, this is a centurion. And then we get a big curveball. It says, and it tells us that he was a God-fearer. Now, here's what God-fearers were. These were people who would show up to synagogue but couldn't go into synagogue that believed in the one true God that Jewish people worshiped but didn't have access to worship and belong to the one true God. This was someone, a God-fearer is someone who would practice two very distinct things. They would give to the poor, just like a good Jewish person would, 
and they would have a personal prayer life with God. They would pray regularly throughout the day. There were several times allotted to that. So here's someone who is an outsider, who's another, a Roman, a centurion, an oppressor, who's also a God-fearer, who is practicing, and this is important because Jewish faith was about practices as much as it was about beliefs. You can say all day long what you buy into, what's more important is how your life is being practiced. So he's practicing all these things that Jewish people were doing. But it's like, it's like he could see it, he could almost taste it, but he couldn't get into it. He couldn't enjoy it. It's like there was this glass wall between him and all these, these God worshipers, these other people, not just God worshipers, these other Jewish people who were worshiping Yahweh intimately, and he could never get in. Now, let me just kind of stop and ask a question. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to you see a place you want to belong to, you want to be accepted and loved, you want to be recognized that you're also wanting that same God, but others there have made a decision, no, we can't make room for that. We don't see it that way. If you can relate to that in church, this passage is for you, okay? And this is an important passage for us to consider and look at. So we read on here that Cornelius gets a vision from God at his 3 p.m. prayer time. And that would have been one of the allotted times. He gets this vision to go send for Simon Peter, who's in Joppa, staying at Simon Tanner's home. And so, I mean, like, you got this Roman centurion, God-fearer, who kind of lives behind a glass window, and God's given him a vision, speaking to him directly. It's breaking all kind of barriers here. And so he goes, okay, so he sends people to Peter. And it says in verse 9, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went on the roof to pray. Now, this would be at noon. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. So let's stop here. We have Peter, who is a devout Jew, the other side of the glass wall. He's a devout Jew, which means he practices giving to the poor and taking care of them. He practices a personal, vibrant relationship with God. But he's also, like, clean, like he's in. And he gets this, like, in a trance, this vision from God of this sheet being brought down, and it has all these animals on it, and he just freaks out because there's like all these animals that you're not supposed to kill and eat, right? There's, there's animals like camels, can't eat a camel, which who'd want to eat a camel still, right? That's weird. Peter would get you for that. Um, rabbits, that'd really kind of knock us back in Mississippi a little bit if we couldn't get the rabbits, right? Like that. Um, pigs, you couldn't live in Memphis without a pig, right? Like, you can't have pigs. Um, you can't have birds and reptiles. I saw someone uh, cook up rattlesnake on a YouTube. I don't know why I watched this. I got caught up watching YouTube, and someone uh, ate a rattlesnake. I don't want a rattlesnake, 
But like you still couldn't do that, okay? In case you've ever wondered, you couldn't have a rattlesnake. And then you couldn't have any type of, of you only could have uh, things in the sea with fins, which means no oysters, y'all, like no shrimp, all right? Like you, you, no ceviche. You wouldn't have a good life. That's what I'm trying to say. There's all these things that you couldn't really, like re- really, really enjoy. Now, Peter looks at this and he goes, oh, by no means, I can't do this. And then look at verse 14. Surely not, Lord, he said, I have never eaten anything impure. And in the ESV, I like it, says anything common. Anything common. That's, that's, that's for others. Anything common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure or common what God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So Peter questions, can this be God? Because if this is God, this is going to like break my brain. And he's like, I, I can't eat anything unclean. No, like what was clean was like deer and uh, cows. It was pretty limited, deers and cows. And they could eat gazelles, which I think is like really wrong. But anyway, all that to say, you had to stay clean. Now, why stay clean? Because if you weren't clean and put clean things into you because that represented a clean relationship with God, you couldn't worship um, in the temple. You would have to go through a ceremonial cleansing outside of the camp for several days. And you wanted to be in temple, in synagogue, because that's where you like were reassured that you were a part of something. That's where you were reassured that all these things you keep saying that you buy into is actualized there because people come alongside of you and, hey, brother, hey, sister, like, so glad you're here. Glad you're a part of this community because we need tangible, objectable things to reassure us of the subjective, imaginative things inside of us we're hoping for. We need people to be able to come alongside of us and go, I see you, I'm with you, you're with me, we're doing this together. People who don't grow up in that are constantly living in a a cognitive dissonance and almost a disassociation of like, where do I belong and where do I connect? Can I be a part of something? Our greatest need in life is to belong and matter. If you ever try to deny a child that they belong to you, if you're their parent or they matter, they will fight for that. They will tell you over and over again how much I love you, mommy and daddy, how much I want to be here, because children only know that they need to belong and matter. It's the deepest desire that we all have as humans. And what synagogue represented was a place for that to be reassured, for you to now find confidence that you now are a part of a community. And therefore, if you were unclean, you couldn't be a part of it. So Peter realizes, like... This is a big deal. And here's the thing. It's no coincidence because right when he comes out of the trance, like, there's a knock on the door. You don't have to, like, break your brain to realize this is a metaphor for something. He's not just trying to tell Peter, hey, if you want some pig at Central, go for it. No. He's going, like, you're about to find out what this whole vision is about, that you've found yourself calling others unclean, others that didn't line up, that weren't a part of it. Because here's what we're finding in the Jesus movement. Gentiles are being brought in. 
So far, like, let me put it this way. There were always some one-offs in the Bible. You can find the Old Testament, one-offs, where, like, Naaman, this is a story of Naaman in, in 1 Kings, where he's a general, and, and he's a pagan. He's an outsider, and, but he goes and washes and gets clean, and, and now he converts to Judaism. He's a part of that. As long as you converted to the rituals and the standards and the traditions and the orientations that they had, then you could, like, be saved in that sense. But here, God is saying, we're about to break some barriers. We're going to go beyond the rituals. We're going to go beyond the traditional understandings of how it's always been done and we've known it. And Peter, if you don't jump in on this, you will miss out on me. If you don't jump in on this, Peter, you will miss out on where the wind of the Spirit is blowing and where I am taking things. Because it's moving to a, I'm for all kinds of people who want to follow me. And by the way, next week, we'll do a part two to this series where we'll, we'll try to unpack, like, for those who have always been in those rituals and traditions, it's not saying that they have to stop that. It's just you got to quit making people move into those places. So there's two sides of this. There's, there's those who are unclean. There are those who are clean. But here we find that God is doing something. So then Peter goes to Cornelius' home, and he hears Cornelius' testimony, his vision. He starts hearing Cornelius talk about his beliefs, but also his practices. And then we find in verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now, what is right? Well, it said the two things. Alms of the poor, meaning you take care of people who are in need. Because when Jesus is saying the kingdom is, about, is coming to this world, the very first people that have entry into the kingdom, meaning the people who will intuitively get the kingdom more than anyone else, will be people who are in poverty. Because those are people who understand neediness. And neediness is the entry fee to the kingdom. And so therefore, it is a person's of privilege's responsibility to take care of anyone who is not privileged. That's how we show that we are a part of this Jesus movement. And here's what I'll say. If you or I don't do that, we can't say that we're part of the Jesus movement. You don't get to do that. You don't get to have a personal kumbaya relationship with God, high-fiving him and your personal relationship with him, and then thinking you're good. Not how it works. We will be sorely disappointed. It means I'm investing in the lives of those who don't have the same resources I have. So Peter examines, okay, you, you do that. And, and then do they have a relationship with God? Do they have a relationship with the one true God through personal prayer? Do they take their prayer life, their spirituality seriously? If a person says, yes, I love Jesus, I walk with him, but they never spend any time trying to know this Jesus, they don't know Jesus. They have some kind of hollowed out form of Christianity that's cookie cutter and was handed to them by pastor so-and-so. Because you have to have, listen, I can say all day long that I love you, but if I don't really know you, I can't really say I love you. That's an empty love. 
And so Peter's like, the first test was simply, does a person's practices line up with this whole Jesus thing? Two practices, really simple. That's the first test. And Peter's like, check. What do I do with that? And so Peter's like, okay, well, here's a second test. He starts preaching the message of the Messiah, that this Messiah came and lived this life, brought healings to those in need. And through his life, his death on a cross, his burial, and then his resurrection, there we have the good news. And that's what Peter and Paul's good news is. Peter's good news here in Acts 10, Paul's good news in 1 Corinthians 15 was simply this, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the end of the argument for what is the gospel. And so Peter preaches this message. Now, so far when Peter preached this message to this kind of homogenous Jewish community, like the spirit would like break loose. We talked about this in the first series of, of this thing on Acts we're doing for 10 months, that the goose got loose, the Holy Spirit, like what the early Celtic Christians uh, in the first few centuries would call uh, the goose, the Holy Spirit, this wild goose running around and doing things. You couldn't catch a goose, and that goose would attack you, and you didn't know what to do with that either. And so Peter preaches this message. You can almost, you can almost see Peter like, hold, like crossing his fingers behind his back. I'm going to preach this message. I'm going to kind of run through it like a good kind of dry run, and, and we'll see what happens. And then we see in verse 45, while Peter was still preaching, speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were so astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So, two things to notice. You can have the acts, the practices of a believer. You give to the poor, take care of those in need, and you have a personal relationship with God. But then you have the sign or the evidence of a true believer. Like, how do I know someone really knows Jesus? Well, here it is. Do you see the Spirit at work in their life? Have you ever gotten around a person and you're going, there's something there? Like, we don't talk about the world in the same ways. We don't even always talk about God in the same ways. But there's a connection, and I don't know what to do with that connection. And maybe you've denied that before. You've gotten around a person who doesn't have the same orientation to you, the same understanding of you, the same background as you, but they keep talking about how much they love Jesus. Like, if you guys both decided on 10 things that make a Christian— and you're both hitting like eight out of 10 of those, and you're connecting on six out of eight of those, you're like, there's a lot of overlap we have here. Like, it's not just something fake here. The Spirit seems to be at work. The Spirit seems to be moving in that person's life. And they saw there's evidence there. And Paul, in Galatians 5, says, just so we're clear, this is what the evidence of the Spirit looks like. You will see love in that person's life and joy and you will see peace, and you will see patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That you will see these things in that person's life, 
notice when Paul says those things, he doesn't say, and you will have the same theological construct as me as them. And you will both high-five each other, yea, thou then, and go home happy. No, doesn't give us that. He doesn't give us a, and you're going to have the same exact to the T doctrinal stances on these things, and you're all going to be good. Doesn't give us that either. He goes, you're going to see things at work in them that you can't always, like, quantify, but there's a qualitative aspect to it. That this person's life seems to be connecting with the risen Savior because of all this fruit coming out of them. And that's one of the things we see here. Peter's going, the Spirit's there. And then we see the second part, which I love. The other way you know that you're interacting with a Jesus movement is you will be astonished who knows Jesus. You will be astonished who knows Jesus. I love it. It says there, uh, verse 45, I'm sorry, verse 44, the circumcised believers, it says we're astonished. In the Greek, it, it's, you know, it's, it's more words than that. It, it says they were put out of their wits. They were outwitted. That's what it's saying. They were outwitted by God. These people who thought they had God so figured out and where God was going and what the Yahweh movement would look like, all of a sudden look around and go, I don't know what to do with this. I see all this spirit stuff happening. I see all these practices happening. And, and I, don't, I don't know if I agree with it, but then I see this and I'm like, I think I just got outwitted by God. Friends, here's what I'd say. See, if we're not careful, we will think that we got this whole God thing down. And then here's what will happen. God will bring a movement that outwits us. It's important we realize that. It's called humility to realize you and I don't have all this thing figured out. That there are people worshiping in different parts of this world, this one true God, and they don't have the same constructs as you, orientations as you, and yet the Spirit's at work. Now, I consider myself an American evangelical. I'm, I'm good with that. Like, I know there's kind of an empty the pews and evangelical thing, and I get that as well because there's a lot of abuse and trauma that has happened in congregations just like ours. And yet for me, I still see so many things I'm good with there. And maybe that movement dies at some point in time, and I'll be fine with that as well. My faith isn't about being evangelical. And what evangelical simply means is you have a high view of Scripture, you believe in some kind of conversion. You believe in some kind of cruciformity, like moving your life to Jesus. And, and you believe that like this has to be actualized and activated in your social life, which by the way, then that's just in the Bible. Okay, fine. Then others can be that way and not call themselves. I don't care. But just so we're clear, that does not make somebody, if somebody calls themselves evangelical or not, that does not mean they're a Christian. Like it doesn't make somebody a Christian that they're evangelical and does it not make them a Christian if they're not evangelical. You don't have to call yourself evangelical to be a Christian. 
And this is a very like real thing that's gotten tied up into our politics today. And I just want you to know, like no side gets to claim that word. And even sides that do claim that word doesn't mean they follow Jesus. And those outside of this country who don't identify in those exact distinct ways, they can still follow Jesus. Because the question is, do you take care of poor people? Do you pray regularly? And it's a spirit obviously at work in your life. Boom, you're in. I mean, I'm not saying it. It just is here, right? And I don't need pastor so-and-so or book from this person to, to show me what this is trying to say. I'm just telling you this is what it says. So many times what we want to do is we want to take X person, X view, X teaching, and then make that fit onto things we see here when this clearly tells us that sometimes God just outwits us. And you're either going to join in on it or you're going to miss out on it. Now, what do we do with all this? Lately, uh, Charlotte, my four-year-old, she is picking up all kinds of things with other four-year-olds at school that I'm like, oh, my God, what are you doing? Like, where'd you get that, right? The other day, she was, saying, she was outside. She started telling a dog to shut up. I'm like, what are you doing? Now, listen, there's some times where there's a wordy dirt dropped in our house, and she's repeated it, all right? And that's Suzanne, not me. I never do that. <laughs> but we don't say shut up, all right? We don't do that. I'm like, where'd you get that? Recently, um, she brought this thing home where she'd run around and run up to me and go, X. She'd make an X sign. X, X, X. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, are you a part of the X-Men? Like, what, what is this thing? And so I, Suzanne and I started trying to figure this out. Her and her little friends at playground at school, they figured out that X uh, can mean nothing, I guess, like X. And so they'll run around calling each other nothings. Like, you're, they're four years old, and they're running around saying, you're out, you're out, you're out, X, you're out, right? And I'm like, this is not okay. What are you doing? You can't X me. I'm your dad. I brought you into this world. You can't X me out. If anybody gets the call, it's me, right? And then, like, it's just interesting. Like, she's, she's starting to think in these, like, who's in, who's out terms. Just so naturally. Um, she's even got this thing where she rides. Uh, we have a long hallway in our house, and it goes from the from the kitchen all the way to the living room, and she will jump on her little scooter and her little push scooter, and she wants to race me back and forth uh, from the kitchen to the living room, and, and then she always just wants to say, I win. I win. You lose. And I'm like, hey, how about we both win? No, only one person wins, and I win, right? There's no sharing in this world. You don't get a trophy, Father. You're an ex, right? And I've been thinking about that. Now, you know, others I've heard say, like, see, that's just that little depraved person in them. Well, it could just be that's just like one of the lowest forms of interacting as a human. You know, there's a reason why sporting events, four-year-olds and 84-year-olds can go to the same place and understand it. It's because it's the most basic level of human interaction. Because we have a winner and a loser. We have someone who's in and someone who's out. We have someone who's up and someone who's down. 
We compare, and if you're down, and if you're on the outside, that affirms that I'm up and I'm on the inside. It's the most basic level of human interaction we can have. And it's not necessarily wrong, but let me tell you this. If, if Charlotte, when she's 15, 25, and 45, is still running around on her scooter telling people X, we have failed at parenting. If all that she can see is who's in and who's out and never get to a place of, well, maybe we're kind of just in this together and we'll kind of feel our way through this. Because let me be really clear. Christianity is much more about a gray space we have to learn how to navigate than a black and white space that just relieves all your fears. And I, I think a lot of us, I know for me, I get caught up with who's in, who's out. Who's right, who's wrong? Who belongs, who doesn't? Paul, who would call himself the, 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 the clear leader in preaching to Gentiles, he says in Galatians 5, 26, do not be conceited, provoking, or envying each other. Do not be conceited, provoking, envying each other. The word conceited in the Greek is this word kinodoxa, kinodoxa, empty glory. Do not be filled with empty glory, provoking, meaning looking down at a person, or envying, always looking up at a person. Don't live your life on this ladder of who's up and who's down, who's in and who's out, but instead jump off that thing and live in the Spirit and just give it room to breathe, man. Like quit trying to figure it out because the more you try to figure it all out, the more you'll be outwitted. Desmond Tutu, the, the great uh, priest, is in your bulletin. He said, we may be surprised at the people we find in heaven. God has a soft spot for sinners. His standards are quite low. I love that. So what does that mean for us as a church? What does it mean to move from a low form of consciousness of how we interact to a higher form of consciousness of interaction? I think it's a few things. See, a lowest form would be that we compare that we don't have the same orientations we don't have the same color of skin. We don't have the same gender. We don't have the same theology. There's your lowest form right there. So what's a higher form of interaction? Do you both call Jesus Lord? Are you both trying to take care of the poor and marginalized and make a difference in their lives out of your own wealth and privilege? Do you both seek to have a deeper relationship with God? And can you see the fruit of the Spirit in that person's life? that we focus on those essentials and get away more and more from all the other non-essentials that can cloud what this all could be if we're willing to give space for the Spirit to look and work, to seek for what we have in common and not just call another person common, unclean. You get that? And I get that's a challenge. I get that that makes faith more uh, tense and scary and uncomfortable and here's what I know. I know there's loads of other churches you could go to in the city that'll resolve that problem for you just like that. And I don't want you to go, but there are others who have had to go. But here's what I want to say. If you want to try to figure out what does it mean to create a space for people to belong, 
and know God. If you want to try to figure out what does it mean to find more things in common and not just call something common or unclean, this is a great place. It's messy. It's hard. It breaks your brain. It breaks my brain every week. And yet here's what I find. I find that there is more gladness for me and more hope because there's many of you that have told me this, that have come to this church and in your own words have said, I was standing behind a glass wall and I kept seeing things I wanted to taste and touch and experience, but I wasn't given access to. And I was about done with church. And now I think I'm good with coming back to church next week. And I'm like, that's a win. We'll take it. There's others of us here that have said, I've always kind of been in this space. It's very homogenous. I've always just kind of belonged. But I'm finding I'm rubbing shoulders with people that we don't always see it the same way. But like, I'm becoming a more kind, loving, and empathetic person. High five. Great. And in that space together, we get to find what does it mean to experience a Jesus who's that loving, that gracious, and that kind. Let's pray. Lord, as we now come before your table, we are obviously challenged with the fact that uh, many times we want to say that we got you figured out, and yet the truth of the matter is you just keep outwitting us. And we don't want to miss out on where the Spirit's moving and blowing and how the Spirit is doing things in so many people's lives and just giving the space to flourish. So I pray now as we come before you in your table, you would meet us, we'd be comforted by you, and we'd realize something, that all those things, all those things we talked about, really the only thing that's, that, that's worth talking about, the only thing that's really important is simply this, the body and blood of Christ, where we come and find communion and community together. We thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen.